Hi, Jason. Are you there? I am here. Hello. Uh, good. Good to hear you. And 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 it's good to uh, actually finally have you on an episode where we're going to talk about things that are all a bit strange and a bit weird. But first of all, what I want to do is for those out there that aren't a hundred percent sure about who you are and where you come from tell us a little bit about your youtube channel uh sure so i'm jason charbonneau i started a channel called think anomalous in early 2016. Uh, before that i had a channel called ufo case review which was uh, a lot more amateur but that's kind of where i got my start um so i am a canadian i'm living in toronto right now uh, i actually have a history degree and uh, in doing my history degree, I kind of got interested in UFOs, uh, you know, just a, a childhood interest, I guess, that mm-hmm. I was following up on. And uh, I quickly learned that, you know, there was a lot to the UFO phenomenon, that there was a lot of actually really good data out there, a lot of really good witnesses. Um, and my interest just kind of spiraled from there. I made a, a, a group, a, a campus group at my university, uh, which then turned into this channel eventually. And um, so, yeah, I do kind of documentary style videos. They're kind of historically oriented uh, for the most part. I generally cover uh, a particular case, like a particular UFO sighting mm-hmm. or a, an abduction encounter. I focus on most, mostly on UFOs. I would say about half my videos are on UFOs. The other half are on all manner of anomalous phenomena. So hauntings, uh, poltergeist cases, uh, you know, demon encounters, encounters with uh, succubi and incubi. Uh, I try to draw, you know, not just from kind of 20th century UFO cases, like the kind of classic American cases that everyone knows, uh, but do historical UFO cases, cases from the early 20th century, um, from the medieval era, from antiquity, and try to draw connections between not only those UFO cases across cultures and across time, um, but uh, across all anomalous phenomena. Yeah, I'm, I, I kind of, um, when I discovered your channel, and it must have been, it was a it was quite a while ago now and uh i kind of jumped in and started watching i think i've watched every one of your videos um the first thing well i have i mean i got you know you fall down that youtube hole you're on a channel and you think oh it's only 20 minutes i'll watch another one oh it's only 20 minutes and and then before you know it a whole afternoon's gone (laughs) so so i apologize for the last time (laughs) it was a good kind of lost time though not not the one that you don't know where you've been Um, so I'm I'm watching your videos and I I can immediately uh, um I can immediately see straight away that you do kind of go for the the stories or the accounts that are a little bit unique and are ones that are not told every day. Is is that kind of intentional to sort of pick a uh, an account and think well I haven't heard of this one before or this is sort of from way back in history? I want to cover this one. Is, is that an intentional thing or does that, does that just sort of happen? Yeah, that's absolutely intentional. I mean, uh, just from a kind of SEO optimization perspective, it's obviously much better to focus on those, again, those classic cases that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, of course, try to cover those. I covered Travis Walton. Um, in the past, I've covered Benny and Barney Hill on my previous channel. I'll do so again on this one. But I also really like to introduce people to things that they hadn't heard of before, uh, not just, you know, on UFO cases or um, other cases of anomalies, um, but really to try to pick cases that really blur the lines between different anomalous phenomena. So for example, I covered the, I think it was my second ever video, uh, was the abduction of Jacob Jacobson or Jacob Jacobson, uh, I believe in Sweden in 1759. 
And it's something I learned about through Jacques Vallée, one of his books. I was just really drawn to it. Um, and basically the rundown of the story is uh, just a young 20-something son of a, a farmer was going across this lake uh, near his hometown, uh, came back on his boat and realized uh, that there was this house on the shoreline that hadn't been there before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes inside this house. He meets these small little beings running around and this kind of uh, you know, dwarf-like figure with this red hat on uh, who eventually kind of expels him from this house. The house just vanishes, basically. Uh, the boy returns to the shore he had been before, uh, walks home and realizes that uh, there were several days uh, that he was missing, uh, that his town was looking for him and couldn't find him, even though his only his experience was something like less than an hour of time. And I was just really drawn to that case because it's so interesting. It, it evokes so many different anomalous phenomena, but you really don't know where to put it. Uh, it, it sounds like a, you know, a UFO abduction, yeah. but there's no UFO mm. and there's no aliens per se. I mean, everything, everybody he saw was sort of human-like. Uh, they never flew anywhere. Um, and, you know, and of course it borders on the fairy elf phenomenon, uh, the red hat, of course, being something associated with, uh, European fairies. Uh, so it's just one of those cases that kind of sits on the borderline between, you know, two phenomena that we might think of as distinct. But then I'm trying to argue, you know, may not be so distinct. Yeah, I do think that um, what's one of my questions to you was when I have watched some of your videos, you do tend to sort of pick out the ones that are a little bit more, maybe have some sort of historical sort of, you know, story to them. And and when I look at some of those stories and you look, you've I mean, I've read lots of accounts where people have had experiences where we go back to things like fairy law, where people right. have gone in the forest and they've, you know, they've met the little people and they, they go where they go for a dance or whatever. And then they've, they encounter missing time where they've disappeared for a few days. They go to a place that they take, try to take people back to the place where they were. And, you know, they can't find it. It was, you know, it's gone. So I think that, um, I think one of these theories, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but, it's relevant to what we're talking about. And I think that the, the, the UFO phenomenon, as it presents itself to us, I think there's a possibility that there is a connection with our history and the way that it, it has kind of evolved. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, first of all, to your first point, I really do like drawing from uh, historical cases because, of course, there's kind of a bias towards the present where, uh, you know, with new reporting systems and especially, you know, the focus on UFOs since 1947 and uh, the U.S. Air Force getting involved in collecting things, we obviously have so many more reports from the second half of the 20th century and beyond. Um, But I would imagine I see no reason to believe that the UFO phenomenon hasn't been around this whole time. Uh, And there, you know, I think it's reasonable to assume that there have been as many cases before the 20th century as there were in the 20th century. So yes, my collection, my selection of historical cases is some attempt to kind of balance out that, that modern bias. It shows that the UFO, the UFO phenomenon and other anomalous phenomena tend to kind of evolve with our own culture, uh, that people always see, you know, when we're talking about UFOs, people tend to tend to see, um, craft or objects that reflect their current level of technological development or their current spiritual beliefs. So for example, you know, the children that saw uh the lady of fatima in 1917 in portugal uh saw her arrive in this kind of ball of glowing light Mm. um you know they were they were um catholic people deeply religious people 
uh, that was kind of their conception of, of uh, how, how something would come from heaven down to earth. Uh, whereas other people, uh, you know, in, in the late 40s in the U.S., when people started seeing flying saucers everywhere, uh, I mean, that was a time of great interest in space exploration. Uh, that was when some of the first uh, cosmonauts and astronauts were, were going out into, the, into space and reaching the moon and all these things. Um, you know, suddenly those kind of milestones were on the horizon. So it's really interesting that you get this huge influx of sightings at that time. And of course, another great one that I love is the mystery airships of 1896 and 1897. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right on the verge of discovering flight. And I've actually done extensive research into the history of flight. And this is kind of a, a period of history I'm really interested in. 1896 in particular was a huge year for flight. There was a guy named uh, Octave Chanute, who was one of the kind of leading um, aeronauts and, and theorists on uh, flying machines. He was conducting, you know, kind of groundbreaking series of experiments that summer. Uh, it was really... A, a turning point, 1895, 1896 was really a turning point uh, in intellectual thought. Before that, the, the idea of a flying machine was kind of dismissed as a, as a crackpot theory. You know, it's like talking about a perpetual motion machine or something mm. of the like, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or a free energy machine. It's just dismissed. At that point was exactly when uh, the kind of leading intellectuals, a lot of, um, you know, esteemed figures were kind of coming around to the idea of flying machines and really saw it as a possibility. And that's exactly when you get these sightings of all sorts of different flying machines, usually just lights in the sky, but um, a really concentrated series of sightings over about a year or so in the U.S. Yeah. And everything and any time that those machines were seen up close, they looked like the technologies of the time. So they had propellers on them. They had flapping wings, uh, like all sorts of elements just drawn from late 19th century uh, uh, science fiction uh, or or, you know, prototypes of machines that were built in that century. Uh, things that, you know, didn't eventually end up working. There were no flying machines with flapping wings, but things that at that time were thought to be the key to developing a flying machine. Do you, do you think that um, as we, as I say, as we evolve and as we sort of start to learn about our environment um, and, you know, we progress on and we start to invent things, I've always thought that, as I said before, that the UFO phenomenon and our say pop culture, the way that we perceive stuff, um, is kind of there is a connection there, and uh, maybe possibly that there's some form of intelligence which is a higher form of intelligence. You know, I mean, we see people go out and they see um, an alien, a, a grey, and they have an experience, mm -hmm. and this is kind of tied into the abduction phenomenon where someone says you know i had an experience it was a little man or whatever it was a gray little man in or it looked like a big black eyes if you go back maybe 30 40 years to the time when the you know the ufos were just getting into the sort of the mainstream when you had close encounters and you had lots mm -hmm. of sci-fi films coming out and you then you know, people started to talk about, you know, oh, I saw an alien, I saw a UFO. But they also then talk about, uh, like, aliens that apparently look like robots or they look like a squid monster mm -hmm. um, or, you know, something that was com that you don't hear about today. Right. Where, where, do, you, where do you think that disconnect is? is what, what's happened there? What do you think that – could you speculate? Yeah, it's a, a really interesting question. Um I, I, I do think that there's some sort of connection between 
pop culture and the phenomenon itself. And, and it's, that connection is not simply that pop culture reflects the phenomenon, but that it might actually influence that phenomenon itself. So again, you know, in the same way that the phenomenon seems over history seems to reflect the level of technological development that we're at. Uh, the mystery airships of 1896 and seven came right at the, on the verge of, uh, the development of heavier than air flying machines. Um, the, the Kenneth Arnold, you know, 1940s UFOs came right at the, at, at the precipice of going into space. Um, I also think that as we see these waves and kind of assimilate them into our mythology and into our culture and start to develop and refine our ideas of what a, a UFO looks like or what an alien looks like, or, you know, just more conceptually, which is what the phenomenon is or where the phenomenon comes from. I do think that the phenomenon then starts to respond to that. So yeah, I, I also ask that question a lot, you know, why do we have all these strange, goofy, like sci-fi aliens and spaceships in the 1950s and 60s and 70s even, I would say. And then those seem to kind of peter out in the 80s and 90s. And mm. all of a sudden things become more concentrated on the gray alien with the big almond eyes. Now, um, as I understand it, the very first depiction of the classic gray alien uh, was on the cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion, which I yes. believe was 1987. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. I don't know the actual day. It was in the 80s, yeah. It yeah. Was communion, yeah. So before that, you know, you'd mentioned uh, Close Encounters. Yeah, there were grayish aliens, but if you look at them really closely, like they're not they're not the the quintessential gray alien with the kind of almond-shaped black no, they're eyes. They're very tall and spindly, yeah. Right, and then there's the little child ones that come out yeah. later. And even before that, you have the Betty and Barney Hill case where, again, uh, Betty Hill described this gray-skinned alien, but it wasn't quite the gray we see today. And it didn't, I don't think it had black eyes. I believe those aliens had pupils. And same with the uh, the aliens that Travis Walton saw. They had, they had pupils and irises and everything, like kind of like a human does. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, but again, Whitley Strieber, he was talking to, you know, Bud Hopkins and, and those researchers in the 80s, and they claimed that their their construction of the gray alien came from the people they were talking to. So they just talked to hundreds and hundreds of supposed abductees. And according to them, all of these people kind of described the same thing. So that's yeah. how we arrived at that alien. Then it goes on Whitley Strieber's, the cover of Whitley Strieber's communion in 1987. And suddenly after that, that sort of becomes the default alien. And witness accounts seem to kind of coalesce around that. So, so yeah. Uh, I, was, yeah. I was just, I was Go just going to add to what you just said, where, where we have this kind of, uh, you know, everybody kind of, it's kind of a thought process. Everybody kind of thinks about the same thing and then that becomes a thing. Right. Um, do you think that adding on and adding to this, what you've just said, do you think that there is, you know, I don't want to, I got to choose my words carefully because I don't want to say a a higher being or a higher consciousness because I don't want to give the wrong I don't want to use the wrong terminology but do you think that that the alien the ET keep it very simple is in a way able to pick up on the way that we feel the way that we think and present to us you know this is what you want me to look like so I will present myself yeah, I, I absolutely do. Uh, I mean, this was something I think first presented by John Keel. He's kind of the, uh -huh, the one to yeah. really articulate that theory. And I think uh, uh, Operation Trojan Horse. Um, yeah, uh, you know, again, I do think that's a way that you can account for uh, the changing of the phenomenon over history. Uh, the way 
you know, that medieval Europeans tended to see, you know, demons or, or, or Jesus or, you know, angels or biblical figures. Um, I mean, as well as fairies and other things, whereas we tend to see beings from outer space. I mean, that's something that we can conceive of. In our worldview, we don't really have fairies anymore. Uh, most of us don't have, you know, Jesus anymore or angels yeah. anymore. Mm. Um, but one thing that the majority of us do tend to believe in is aliens. Uh, so, yes, I think the phenomenon kind of comes to us as aliens because it, it knows that that's a way that we can kind of assimilate that sighting uh, into our current worldview. Um, you know, just enough that we're not completely baffled by it or our brains, you know, can't reconstruct it at all. Um, but of course, it's just shocking enough and, and just outside of our worldview enough that it's still, you know, a major shock to our system, which I think is kind of the whole point behind the phenomenon, in my opinion. Do you think that um, religion as a whole, when we take religion, uh, all the different religions in the world, do you think that um, religion pay, plays a part in the way that those, not only that are religious and practice their religions, you know, go to church and so on, but someone that doesn't necessarily is a very religious person that is aware of whatever, whether it be Christianity or whatever, do you think that they can pick up and take from that? You know, they think of, you know, everybody knows the story of Jesus or everybody knows uh, the Easter story or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that subconsciously, I mean, for example, I remember as a young child go, going to Sunday school mm -hmm. and it wasn't something I was forced to do. Uh, I wanted to go and it was because all my friends went and it was fun. But I always remember the uh, the teacher that used to host the classes. There was always some sort of biblical story that we always had to stop for and listen from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And she would tell this story of whatever it was. Yeah, she would, you know, she would pick a story from the Bible and then she would sit and read it and we'd all have to sit cross-legged and listen. And I think that when I think back to those days and I grow older and I started to get an interest in the paranormal, I always used to think back, well, yeah, well, you know, if you think about the Bible and this happened and that happened, uh, were those people back then, were they also talking to maybe having strange encounters with beings from somewhere else? You know, do, do you, what's your thoughts on that with the Bible and, uh, and you know, the un unknown phenomenon? Yeah, I, I do tend to see, I mean, I guess as a caveat, it's, it's difficult with really old sources like that, you know, in particular, the Bible, yeah. one of the oldest sources in the world. Uh, you know, we simply don't know who wrote it. Uh, we don't necessarily know the culture, uh, the worldview of the person who wrote it, why they wrote it. We don't know, you know, how it was changed over time. Uh, we don't know if, you know, the, the, the so-called witness in that case was the, the same person who wrote it or how long a time period of time there was between the person seeing the thing and, and the account being written down. So, you know, just getting that aside, um, it does seem to me that a lot of the encounters described in the Bible um, are the same, some of the same phenomena that we're seeing today and the same phenomena that have operated throughout history. Uh, once again, you know, I think the phenomena is coming to those people or came to those people um, in a way that they would comprehend. So they, they, they arrived as gods or angels or demons. Um, and they have, they have come to people in different times and places 
uh, in different guises and of course come to us in a completely different guise. But I do think there's value, there's value in looking at those old accounts. Like for example, the account of, uh, I think it's Elijah being taken up to heaven um, um, by chariots of fire and horses of fire. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and supposedly just disappearing after that. So you know? when, we, when you talk about ancient, um, I, I'm trying to, I'm really racking my brains because I haven't got my notes in front of me, but there is um, a case from uh, ancient Rome where um, some soldiers witnessed a, uh, a phenomenon in the sky uh, and it was put down to some, you know, event and it was it was written down but there are well, my point is that there are in history there are cases that have happened and they have been written down i remember watching um one of your videos that you did most recently regard i think it was in it was the case of the flying ship yes uh, i think it was an island wasn't it was it in ireland or was it in europe uh well there there, there were several different accounts over time, um, a few of the accounts put the put the event in Ireland. Some uh -huh. just say it was Great Britain, so it's a little ambiguous. But yeah, yeah, I think generally the, the account, the very first account of the flying ships was from Ireland. But we have um, a contact with individuals. So we go back to the airships. There's cases where people have seen these ships in the sky, and they've seen people on board, and those people on board have called out to them or waved to them. Mm -hmm. And when we go to uh, this story where an allegedly an individual comes down to, you know, they drop it, the crazy thing, they drop an anchor and someone jumps overboard and swims down to them. Right. Uh, completely bizarre. But right. when we look at it from the point of view of pretend that I am that higher intelligence and I can only manifest in a way that I look at the way that you understand the world and I can only manifest in that way, then I'm going to think, okay, you travel on ships, those ships travel on water. If you were in the water, you'd have to swim. So if I manifest this, then maybe you would accept it and understand it a little better in that right. way. Right. Uh, do you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's super interesting because it tells you so much about how those people thought in that time, you know, yeah. what their kind of conception of the universe was or the world was or physics was. And I think, I think it's a point I made uh, in that video um, you know, that at the time people kind of believed in this um, Aristotle, uh, Aristot sorry, oh, messing up the word, uh, Aristotle, uh, Aristotelian. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Aristotelian uh, view of the atmosphere. Uh, and I don't exactly remember all the specifics, but it's basically that there were kind of three layers to the atmosphere yeah. with pretty distinct boundaries between them. Uh, and, and those layers got less dense as you go higher and higher. Actually, you know, pretty close to the, the modern theory of the atmosphere, but just kind of much more simplified. So what we're seeing um, or what those people saw when they saw these flying ships is exactly what you'd expect if you believed in that kind of three-tiered uh, view of the of the atmosphere. If you really believe that there was a, like a sharp boundary between layer one and layer two, like there is a sharp boundary between the ocean and the sky above it, for example, then you would imagine that something could simply sail on top of that boundary, just like ships sail on the water. And of course, mm. like you said, then you would expect that, well, if somebody jumped off that boundary into the boundary below them, uh, that that would then be a denser medium, they'd swim through it. So it's just very fascinating. I mean, you know, those people saw exactly what what one would expect to see given their worldview. And I yeah. do think that that is a feature inherent in the phenomenon, that that it always manages to insert itself 
into our world, into our conception of the universe, even if that conception is ridiculous, you know, by by modern physical knowledge. I um, I wanted to uh, just we, we're talking about stuff from history, and we're looking at different, you know, we're looking at different ways that we can people understand the UFO phenomenon. And I, I, as, as everybody knows at the moment, it's, that's into the, into UFOs. The UFO phenomenon is, or everyone's talking about it at the moment, because we've had, in recent years, we've had the the, the Tic Tac UFO and, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, some people are on the fence. They're like, well, I don't know what it is. Some people say, well, clearly it's um, it's a a hyper, you know, it's it's a hypersonic probe. That's why it goes so fast. Um, you know, it's, it's another country spying on another country. Um, and then you have cases where others say, no, no, it's, you know, it is something more than that. I'm just wondering, where do you think the, you know, of course it's going to Congress now and they're going to have a hearing, aren't they, about the, the UFO phenomenon. And, uh, you know, where do you, where do you stand with that? Where, where do you, where do you sort of sit? I'm kind of on the fence, to be honest. Because I'm not too sure where is this going to go. But have you, have you have we seen have we been here before? Are we on like a, a hamster wheel? <laughs> uh, in many ways, I think we are. Yes, and I would direct your viewers to um, two videos I did on uh, UFO disclosure, uh, parts one and part two, and it kind of really details my my full thoughts on this on this matter because I do think it's fairly important. Um, I guess so. For those of, for those who don't know. Um, I guess what we're talking about kind of began in, in 2017 uh, with Tom DeLonge talking about uh, Tom DeLonge from Blink-182, uh, yeah. a, a guitarist, pop punk guitarist and singer, um, somehow gets tied up with the, with the, the U.S. government, um, is supposedly facilitating some whistleblowers from deep within you know, the intelligence community. Hmm. And he partners with this guy named Luis Elizondo, who claims to have headed this program within the U.S. government called ATIP, or the uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, um, and they they you know promised to release all this all this evidence, um, you know, video of UFOs and things. And there's all these asso- associated claims, like DeLong says that he's going to build um, you know warp drives and spaceships. We won't get into that, um, and DeLong kind of uh, fades away uh, pretty soon after. I think he kind of proved an embarrassment for the movement. Um, but Luis Elizondo, the guy who claims that he ran this ATIP program, yeah. he has carried on and continued to uh, kind of facilitate these so-called disclosures. And he's created a show on, I think, the History Channel called Unidentified. Um, and there's, there's just been kind of a series of, of disclosures in the last few years. Uh, to me, they're all just very underwhelming. I mean, those original videos, I think there were three videos released originally. I mean, they're interesting videos, and it's great to see, and it's great to see the U.S. Navy um, uh, releasing these and acknowledging the reality as they eventually did. Um, And, you know, I think in the videos, you do see some things that are pretty interesting. You see a UFO apparently dip below the water um, without breaking any momentum, you know, without losing any speed and coming back up again. Uh, You know, just some interesting aerial maneuvers and whatnot. Um, But, you know, really, as as UFO evidence goes, that's not terribly interesting. I mean, we do have videos of UFOs. I know there's a lot of hoaxes online, yeah. um, but we do have a handful of UFO videos that are pretty interesting, and videos dating back to 1950. Um, you know, and 
like they just kind of kept reusing those same three videos. So even on, you know, after two se series, two seasons rather of the show Unidentified, they're still running those same three videos, the same kind of 10 seconds of footage over and over again. Um, and it's kind of like, well, you know, if this were really a true disclosure, or if you were really opening up your archives and, and showing the public everything that you have, there should be way more than this. You know, why have we only seen these three videos, right? Yeah. And most, just recently, just a month or so ago, they they made some announcement that, oh yeah, there was there's several cases on record where people experienced radiation poisoning or or you know physical biological effects from UFO encounters. And again, that's a great admission. It's great to see the U.S. government acknowledging that. But we've known that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. You know, the, the famous Cash Landrum case in 1980, uh, where two witness, three witnesses were heavily irradiated and got really sick. And I think one yeah. of the witnesses got cancer and died later on. Yep. So, I mean, you know, there's really been nothing said by the, the government, by Luis Elizondo or anyone else, that's something that, you know, I didn't know before. And I think any serious UFO investigator um, is kind of underwhelmed by these disclosures. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So just, you know, just to sum up, um, it's not so much that I think that, you know, they're lying or misleading anybody. Um, you know, again, I think everything's been released is, is well, I'm not sure about the existence of ATIP and Luis Elizondo. I think there's some, some deceit there. Um, but as far as, you know, the UFO data specifically, um, I, I think they're releasing accurate info. I think they're releasing real videos for the most part. It's just very underwhelming and it doesn't really feel like true disclosure. It doesn't really feel like true transparency. Uh, so I just, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of the intentions and I don't really see much coming out of this that's going to change our understanding of the UFO phenomenon. I I have a, a, a little bit of a worry that uh, like you, you know, you rightly said, a lot of the information that's coming out is stuff that is being pushed as, well, we're telling you this or we're telling you that, but those, whatever they're telling you has already been out and been written about for many years. Mm -hmm. And my, my biggest worry is when, when we do have these hearings and we do have, you know, people will turn around and go, ah, yes, but those videos that were released, we've now proved that they are this or they are that. And then the whole thing can be put to bed and it's, it was all mistaken identity Right, uh, and they were they were put out into the public domain for a reason, that kind of thing. Because mm -hmm. if you go back to the um, early, I think it was the early two thousands with uh, Stephen Greer, and mm -hmm. he did the whole disclosure movement. Yep, and he had a lot of people that had worked in quite high, you know, high positions, and they had clearance to certain things, and they got up on, you know, in front of a news crews and told their story and some of the some of the stories that they told were it was like wow that's that sounds like a script of a film it was like right. that's wow but where, what happened you know, what what happened that was a kind of a media event but nothing really happened from it yeah um yeah there was also the the citizens hearing on disclosure in, in 2013 i think it was uh yeah i mean there's there's been lots of of press conferences and, and hearings and things over the years. Um, yeah, they don't seem to go anywhere. And, and, you know, why would they? I mean, you know, my perspective on it, and again, this is something I kind of bring up in my videos and uh, actually in an article on my website uh, titled um, Discovery, Not Disclosure. 
I just think it's a, a kind of methodological miscalculation to try to get information out of the government yeah. um, or, or, you know, for that to be your kind of main way of driving ufology forward. I mean, the government's only ever going to tell you what they want to tell you. They have no obligation. Uh, you know, they've got all sorts of, of secrecy laws protecting the date, whatever data they have. And by the way, they might not have the data that you think they have, right? And we'll never know. We could just be chasing nothing here. Uh, I imagine they, they do have more data than they're letting on, but they're not going to give that to you freely. They're only going to give as much as they want to. And you're never going to know that the data that they're giving you is accurate. Um, because again, you know, the collection of that data and everything is going to be buried in secrecy laws. Yeah. So yeah. you're kind of always being forced to trust the government. And it's so funny, you know, to, to, to see ufologists and, and, you know, the UFO community going after the government, because of course, that's a group that doesn't trust the government on anything. And, you know, they're, they're kind of at the government's throat going, tell us what you know, tell us what you know. Well, even if they told you, if they sat down and leveled with you and said, okay, everything we're going to say for the next couple hours is, is the absolute truth. Would you believe them at the end of that? Right. So yeah. to me, you know, we really have to follow a, a, a scientific process here. I mean, the only way we can know that, that what we know is true is to do it scientifically. Uh, you know, all our data has to be open and, and shareable with the public. Um, people have to be able to, to look at our methods, look at our theories, look at our, our data collection, look at our reasoning, look at our analysis and peer review it, right? Uh, that's the only way you can really be sure that what you know is true. Um, so to me, you know, again, it's great that the government's saying these things. It's great that that's sort of changing the culture. That's making people a little more open to the idea that UFOs are real. I think the veil of ridicule is slowly being chipped away and that's good. But ultimately, you know, I, I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of the UFO phenomenon by kind of wrenching it out of the government. Um, I think we have to do so through a scientific process, uh, whether that be through the university system or just kind of a, you know, a citizen uh, scientific agenda. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you um, regarding UFOs, have you have you ever experienced anything a bit uh, a bit strange? I have actually. Um, I don't believe I've ever talked about this in public either. Um, in the summer of 2013, um, my parents live on a farm uh, uh, between London and Windsor, um, Ontario in Canada, uh -huh. uh, right, right down by Detroit, right by the U.S. border. Uh, and I was down on the farm doing uh, this farm job one summer between a couple of years, uh, I think during while I was doing my master's at university. And um, I brought a friend with me uh, from Ottawa. I was going to school in, uh, in Ottawa at the time. And we were both just kind of doing this, this farm job during the day. And, uh, you know, we'd often work late into the night kind of thing. And one night, you know, we both kind of finished up. We just took a walk back this laneway on my parents' farm just to kind of unwind for the night. And we see this light in the sky and it's kind of moving around, you know, in, in some strange patterns. It, it looks unusual. It's, it's yeah. maybe a little brighter than a star. It looks like a, you know, like a bright planet. Um, but it's kind of moving in an arc motion, you know, and things you don't normally see. And I'm trying to rationalize it. I'm trying to think, well, that's a jet. And we're looking at the afterburners of a jet flying away, but then we'd see it stop and reverse course. Uh, you know, it was moving directly left and then it would instantly switch moving right, you know, without slowing down and speeding up again. Um, and it almost seemed like it was performing maneuvers specifically to counteract whatever theories I was coming up with in my head. You know, when, right, I, said, yeah, oh, yeah. when I said, oh, it's a helicopter, it would do something a helicopter couldn't do. When I, when I said it was a jet, you know, it switched directions instantaneously. 
almost like it was just forcing me to acknowledge that it's unusual. Yeah. And we followed it around for maybe two or three minutes. And then eventually <clears throat> just kind of lost sight of it. I don't know if it just vanished, just disappeared. We're trying to find it again. And we see it reappear in the sky, kind of lower in the horizon. So maybe, you know, 10 degrees off the, off the horizon. And this time we can see it a little bigger. It's bigger than a single point of light at this point. I actually can see that it's elliptical shaped, like kind of disc shaped. And we can see several different colors on it that were changing in totally irregular patterns. Um, so, you know, the left would be orange and the right would be white. And then all of a sudden the top would be yellow and the bottom red and the right side would be green. And then it would shift to, you know, red on top and, you know, just random, seemingly random color changes uh, that didn't seem to emanate from specific lights fixed to the, to a craft. It just seemed like the craft itself was just changing colors randomly. Yeah. And after about maybe 30 seconds of that, it just vanished, just instantly disappeared, didn't see it anymore. And um, what's really interesting about that, I hadn't, even, I wasn't even thinking about it at the time, but later that night, I had remembered that I actually had a dream about three weeks before when I was still in, um, in, in Ottawa, I had a dream that I was on my parents' farm and saw a UFO in the sky. Um, my dream was a little different. I saw, you know, a point of light from my old childhood bedroom. Yeah. It, it was kind of circling around the earth, like spinning crazily in the sky. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't the exact same thing, but it was just very odd that that happened. And another oddity on top of that is that the next day, my friend Ian calls his wife back in Ottawa. And she's saying that there's been a mark, there's a mark has appeared on the side of the house. And, you know, he's asking about it. She sends him a picture. And sure enough, it's a perfect semicircle burned, apparently burned into the siding of the house. So a semicircle starting, you know, at the ground. Yeah. Um, and it was maybe, I don't know, five feet tall or something. And just a perfect, consistent diameter all the way around, like about two inches. And he tried scrubbing it off when he got back to Ottawa. It would not come off. It was burned into the siding. And when, it apparently appeared the night of our sighting. I was going to say, what, what in when did it appear? It, it appeared around the same time. Yeah, I mean, um, well, the, the thing was they had had, his wife had had, um, I think, an air conditioner crew come in the day yeah. of our sighting, I think. And, um, you know, she didn't notice it immediately after they left, but she noticed it the next morning, like the morning after our sighting. And so she automatically attributed it to the crew. She said, I don't know, they, they burned the house somehow. And, you know, they got in touch with the crew, obviously, and the crew was like, well, we didn't do that. And there's no way we could have done that. I mean, you know, what would have even caused that? So, you know, we can't know for certain exactly when it appeared, but she noticed it the night after our sighting, which is interesting. And having your experience, did you find that after you had your experience that you were in, you know, you were more motivated to sort of look into the phenomenon and learn as much as you could about it? Well, I mean, at the time I was already very into it. I mean, that was, um, I was already working on my first channel UFO case review at that time. I, th I mean, uh -huh. that was, I guess, just the beginning of that. So in retrospect, I suppose, yeah, it did kind of accelerate my, my, uh, my involvement in it. I would say my interest was already there. And that's the other interesting is that both me and Ian were, were interested in UFOs. I had referenced earlier a, a campus group I'd made. He was in that campus group years before. So we had both been interested in UFOs before our sighting. And Ian is someone who has actually seen several UFOs throughout his life. He's had UFOs appear in photographs that he didn't realize were there at the time. And I think he's had two other UFO sightings and other um, haunting experiences in his home. 
He's heard like phantom music playing in his bathroom one time. He's just one of those people that seems to be a magnet for these type of sightings. So, uh, but anyway, yes, uh, it, 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 that sighting did seem to kind of mark uh, the beginning of my real involvement in UFOs in terms of making these videos. So I was going to say, I was just going to add to what you uh, said about your friend, him hearing phantom music in his home. Uh, now, some people are, once again are on the fence with Whitley Strieber and his experiences. Have you uh, have you read the communion book? I have, yeah. Okay, a so, few years ago now, but yeah. Yeah, great. it's a great book. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, strangely enough, it'll make a great film. Oh, hang on a minute. It did. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah. But I thought the book was better. Uh, yeah. Although Christopher Walken is amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So there is a bit in the book where, he, obviously, for those that haven't read the book, um, most of the, the great deal, and if not all of the phenomenon that Whitley uh, experiences is in his cabin in the woods. Is New York, wasn't it? Yes, was it I think New so. Yeah, uh, and it was a place where him and his wife would like a and go, and they would have friends there and stuff. And he would he, he tells the story of how um, after he started to have these events happen to him, uh, that he would um, get the feeling that he would be in the house in the cabin on his own at night, uh, and he would feel that he wasn't he he was not alone that well, there were other other people in the building with him but he couldn't see them and mm -hmm. and it goes back to what he likened it to a form of um like a, a poltergeist infestation now other cases ufo cases out there people talk about um having the feeling of you know not being alone or having you know stuff in their house poltergeist phenomenon type phenomenon uh I, i'm thinking that maybe like Whitney says in his book, that maybe these visitors have the ability to uh, go out of our visual spectrum so that we can't see them. Even right. though they're there, we haven't got the... We can feel them. Our senses can feel someone there or something, mm -hmm. but we because they're not in our... They're shifting out of our visual spectrum. Uh, we're, we're kind of blind to them. Right. Do, do, do you think that's a possibility? I do. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of, to me, as soon as you started saying that, it, it made me think of uh, Rupert Sheldrake's work and his, uh, his yeah. research into the, the phenomenon of being stared at. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. And he's done a bunch of experiments to suggest that someone indeed can tell when someone is staring at them, mm. uh, even if they don't know that that person's there. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, again, just my, my general thoughts on the UFO phenomenon or anomalous phenomena, I don't think that the UFOs are coming here from another planet. I actually don't really think that they're extraterrestrials, although I am open to that explanation. Uh, I think that they're kind of always here. And maybe they come from, you know, maybe they live inside the Earth's core, as some mm. people think, or, you know, in the oceans or whatever. Um, but I kind of just think that they're uh, all around us all the time, um, you know, much like spirits in, uh, you know, Native American lore um, or a lot of ancient belief systems. Um, that there are, you know, virtually every culture on earth has this concept of some being being there. And right now I'm working on a video on the jinn um, from, ah, the, from the Quran and kind of uh, Arabic culture. Um, but, you know, again, we mentioned berries in European lore and kobolds and um, uh, uh, gnomes. And, you know, every culture all around the world has some concept of some being or some spirit that's there that exists on some other plane 
and kind of enters our reality at certain times to interact with us uh, for whatever reason, and then kind of retreat to their plane again. So yeah, that that's generally how I think about it. Um, I have to ask this question because it's kind of uh, whenever we talk about UFOs, I always ask this question. What's your thoughts on uh, the events that occurred at Skinwalker Ranch? Um, that's a good question. I Skinwalker Ranch was a big one for me. I was actually reading um, John B. Alexander's book. I think it's called UFOs, Myths, Real Myths and Realities or something. John B. Alexander was a, a U.S. government guy, a, a military guy uh, who was kind of involved with the Stargate research and, you know, a bunch of research into anomalous phenomena in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And he's kind of since spoken out about UFOs and things. And at the time I read his book, I was kind of a more or less nuts and bolts UFO guy. I, I believed mm -hmm. that they were extraterrestrials and that they were, you know, physical craft that flew here from a different planet and then flew back to the planet after they were done. Um, but John B. Alexander was actually uh, one of the in investigators at Skinwalker Ranch on the NIDS team. And so he was actually there and collected some data and he talked about it in his book and, and him talking about it really opened my mind to that case and to the, to the idea that there might be some connections between UFOs and other anomalous phenomena. And it was actually kind of from there that I got into Jacques Vallée. Um, so yeah, that, that case is huge for me. And if you, you know, read George Knapp's book, I mean, it's just, it's a real page turner. Yeah. Um, now since I've become a little more skeptical, I mean, I, I tend to believe that there was something there that something that there is some weird phenomena at that ranch. Uh, you know, I believe that the family that owned the ranch before did experience a lot of weird things. And by the way, those weird things track with other weird things in the area. Uh, I, I remember some MUFON uh, article from the 70s talking about a case in Colorado that was very similar, like a ranch where, you know, they saw Bigfoot and they saw UFOs and all sorts of phenomena. Yeah. But I guess since then, I, I've just, I, I, it bothers me that that group that NIDS and Robert Bigelow and everybody involved with buying that ranch and doing that research was kind of so tight-lipped about it and never ended up publishing anything. Yeah. I mean, I, just from a methodological perspective, it's kind of problematic to me that our best source on Skinwalker Ranch is just a just a, a general reading book written by a journalist, George Knapp, you know, and co-written by one of the scientists there. But it's kind of like, well, if you know, if you guys really collected some good stuff, if you're, you know, your scientific team tasked with gathering scientific data then why didn't you publish anything in a journal, even in your own journal or in a, you know, a fringe journal? Um, yeah. Why, why do you just sort of have this, you know, this book that almost reads like a fiction book and for all we know could be a fiction book, right? That that's the problem really, where, where you get these high, high profile cases where you have people talking about phenomenon. And when we talk about Skinwalker, we have these giant or, or almost uh, mythical wolf, giant wolf dogs that mm -hmm. appear and don't die when you shoot them uh you have uh the owner's dogs apparently being liquidated you have this orb opening up in the um in in the fields and this well i can only say it was a wild man or a bigfoot steps out and walks off across right. the fields uh and all this phenomenon that seems to go on uh that allegedly has been documented and witnessed and mm -hmm. then bigelow comes along yeah he buys it up he buys the ranch he puts a team in 
they do an investigation they do their vigils they they do all the things they do but nothing was ever no no as you say nothing was ever written nothing was ever released no right. video or no documentary mm-hmm. um the only thing that we've got are these you know there's a few tv shows on it but it's always right. the same it's always the same information yeah the same stories yeah yeah it just kind of feels like you know anybody could have just stayed at the ranch for a few months and written a book on it i could have done that you know i thought the whole point of the nids investigation team thought the whole point of buying the ranch and you know setting resident sciences up there on a permanent basis was to gather something more than that so yeah i was gonna say that the only the only thing i can think of is that he bought the ranch uh knowing that there was phenomenon and the phenomenon was more than what he they possibly believed it was and someone with a lot of power has told them to uh you're not going to release that that's right. going to stay under wraps okay um right. put some story out there write some book tell some stories and then put it to bed mm-hmm. because we do get that with a lot of these high profile cases where you'll as i say the story will be told um and then you'll have a few people that will come out and do the rounds could do the do the conventions and and tell the story and then it kind of quietly just disappears and something else takes its place. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back in history and you look at some some classic UFO cases, um, I'm trying to think of one now that happened in the mid up the Midlands in England. It was back in the oh, I'm trying to think of the lady's name. She was a an older lady. She had two children, mm-hmm. and she tells the she tells the story. I remember seeing the video, um, or the clip on Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Oh, yeah. uh and it was it must have been back in the uh late late 70s early 80s and she tells the story that she's in a farmhouse that and this huge craft lands on her roof hovers above her roof they go outside and there's these beings with long hair looking down at them you know with a a, a sorry face and and there's the people are so scared that they run indoors they hide under the table and i think to myself my god that's just so that's mind-blowing right uh why would anybody make something up as crazy as that? What to be on a, a TV show for maybe right. five minutes? Right. So definitely, there's something with the UFO phenomenon. There definitely is something going on. But as we spoke about earlier, I, I don't know if we're on the right track as to what it is. I don't know if uh, maybe it's nuts and bolts in some way, but maybe not nuts and bolts in the way that we understand. You know, it's not a it's not a vehicle it's something that's created through a maybe thought process or we i think we need to understand what it is behind the ufo phenomenon that may be causing the ufo phenomenon and you touched on an earlier uh touched on earlier a interesting concept that maybe the ufo phenomenon has been around for much longer than we've been around mm-hmm. and that maybe it is inherently connected in some way with the ecology and the environment of this planet you know right. Right. i mean if you if you think about for example if we, you know we're not very good at getting on and we go off and we have a, a, a crazy war look at all the um the the phenomenon the paranormal phenomenon that's happened in places of mass conflict right. where people see you know strange things in the sky uh, that some of the stories from Vietnam where they had strange stuff going on in the jungles when 
the troops were out on maneuvers. They would see these strange lights, these strange apparitions. So maybe there's something more to... Okay, okay, we could say that these people are under a lot of stress. And when you're under a lot of stress, you can hallucinate, you can misidentify. That's completely plausible. But maybe also that the phenomenon that we're experiencing is in some way hey, saying, hey, look, listen, you've got to kind of behave a little bit and, you know, grow up a little bit. I mean, the, what, the UFOs and uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, that's mm-hmm. another thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, do you think, I mean, I think that there's a connection. I think that there's definitely a connection there with, with us, the way that we treat the planet and the phenomenon. Yeah, I think there's certainly some material there that would suggest that that kind of connection. I mean, for example, um, just the the kind of modern wave of the phenomenon beginning in 1947, um, that was kind of used uh, for, by Stanton Friedman, for example, a, a Canadian researcher, one of the most kind of famous UFO researchers of the 20th century, uh, recently died. Uh, he He had famously kind of said, well, the reason we started seeing this huge wave of UFOs in 1947 is because they were responding to our use of nuclear weapons in 1945. Yeah. Yeah. And he made all these calculations to suggest that, well, if you're coming from a different dis- distant galaxy, it would take you two years to get here. So that's why there's this two year lag. Um, you know, interesting theory. Um, there is, for example, the um, Maelstrom UFO encounter, or, um, UFO, enco- UFO encounter at Maelstrom Air Force Base in 1967, uh, where the witness, uh, I believe his name was Robert Salas, uh, saw this this golden golden disc hovering over the base. Yeah. And after it flew away, I think there were, I can't remember, but several um, warheads. I don't think there were nuclear warheads, but several warheads that were disabled um, inexplicably uh, during the UFO sighting. And then, for example, there's uh, the uh, landing at Rua, Zimbabwe in 1994. I did a video on this. Um, and basically, uh, a bunch of kids in South Africa saw this UFO land and saw these yeah. two beings come out, black-eyed beings, and had a, a lot of the students uh, said that they had some sort of telepathic exchange with these beings. And what several of them said was that there was some warning about environmental catastrophe or that people were getting, as one student put it, too technologed and that that would um, lead to disastrous consequences for the planet. Yeah. Uh, then, for example, um, John Mack, one of the big researchers, UFO uh, abduction researchers in the 80s and 90s, he talked about this being a common theme um, that a lot of experiencers, uh, kind of uh, an alternate term for abductees, um, they become much more environmentally conscious after their experiences. Uh, even if there's no kind of direct communication of environmental messages during their experiences, that they just sort of end up being more you know, attuned to the connection between all life and, and more mm-hmm. conscious of the planet. So that's certainly there um and you know it is tempting to think okay well that's what this is all about but then i always have to balance that out by saying well but you know those are only a handful of cases really um of course there are you know many more but i could name just as many cases and and many more cases that have no environmental message whatsoever Mm. um and in fact you know to me the mystery airships of 1896 and 7 I don't think any of those encounters in the, in the rare instances where witnesses saw pilots or spoke to pilots, I don't think any of them ever communicated an environmental message. And in fact, the message seemed to be very um, um, kind of triumphant of flying machines and the march of technology. And what everyone seemed to take away from those sightings was that, well, flying machines are on the horizon. Clearly there's some secret experimenter out there who's, 
who's invented one already and that's why we're seeing these things and isn't this exciting isn't this great we're about to enter the the, the era of flight you know and of mm. course we know now that flight is is an enormous contributor to greenhouse gases and a you know enormous uh, problem for the environment true uh yeah so, so, so uh... So it's hard. I don't know. And and that's kind of one of just the things you have to keep in mind about UFO sightings is that, you know, there may not be a single phenomenon here. Um, there it may not be a single intelligence coming to us, even though, I, you know, I know I've said several times throughout this interview that I think it is a consistent phenomenon or phenomena throughout time, um, that there may actually be several intel intelligences coming to us or, you know, the goal of that intelligence may be changing over time or, you know, it may have a different goal with each culture or with each person it visits. I don't know. There's just a lot of conflicting evidence out there. And that's kind of one of the things you have to keep in mind about UFOs is that just about any encounter you can imagine has happened to someone somewhere. So yeah, I, I don't want to rush into kind of simplistic explanations for what's going on. I think it's just a very complicated kind of body of data and we have to try to keep it all in mind when we're trying to explain what's going on here. I've saved the best, I think, uh, the the most uh, interesting question. Uh, okay. Not that all these questions aren't interesting. Yeah, they, all of this, all great, yeah, yeah. But uh, the most interesting to last. We're coming to the end of this episode, and I wanted to save the end, the best one till last, because it's the hardest question to answer, and I think it's the uh, the the question that that hasn't got an answer, and all you can do is speculate. Uh, I just wondered, in in your opinion, where do you think the the ufo phenomenon is going to be in maybe another decade do you think that we're going to be do we we're going to know what what it's all about do, are we going to have some sort of uh mass awakening which was meant to happen what tw two decades ago or do you think that we're going to still be scratching our heads and arguing with each other about what the phenomenon is uh that's a good question i don't think i've ever been asked that before I don't want to sound too pessimistic here, uh, especially to close out the interview. I, I unfortunately don't think that there's going to be some big breakthrough. Um, as I said before, I don't think that we're going to get any real answers out of disclosure or out of the U.S. government. But I guess hopefully there will be some increasing awareness of the other kind of neglected dimensions of the phenomenon or the phenomena um, that maybe will finally kind of move beyond the kind of narrow limitations of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Maybe we'll become more open to possibility of a spiritual dimension there or a cultural kind of mythological dimension to it. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of one of the main goals behind my channel is I'm trying to open up people's minds to those other things, to think about other elements, other dimensions, other characteristics of sightings, um, and to kind of move away, again, from the narrow confines of, of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and to try to integrate UFOs and the UFO data into our wider knowledge of anomalous phenomena and, and folklore and other such things. So I, I'm optimistic about that, that there might be kind of more exploration in that direction. Nicely answered. That's a nice way to end this episode. We're, we're kind of, uh, we're, we're still kind of scratching our heads. And I, and, and from my perspective, I think we will be for, for a very long time. So Jason, uh, let the listeners know where they can see more of your content. And I also want to know, and what's your kind of projects for uh, this year? Have you got anything else coming up? Uh, sure. So I have a website, www.thinkanomalous.com. Uh, very easy to find. I post all my videos there. Uh, I do even have um, uh, kind of essays, articles there. I haven't published a new one in a while, but there's, there's some good ones there from years past. Uh, you can find me on YouTube or Rumble or BitChute or Odyssey. 
I'm on a bunch of different platforms now. So if you're fed up with YouTube, you know, look for me wherever you find your videos. I'm there as Think Anomalous on all platforms. Uh, you can follow me on, on Twitter, on Facebook, or on Instagram at Think Anomalous. And uh, yeah, I, I do have big long-term plans for this channel. I would eventually actually like to start doing interviews like this of my own. Unfortunately, I am. I do have a, a day job that I'm very busy with, uh, so I'm kind of limited by that. Uh, at the moment, I'm still just kind of doing my regular videos roughly every two months. Uh, as I said, I have a video coming up on the gin that is going to be really interesting. That should be out in about a month. Uh, working on a video on near-death experiences as well, uh, which will be really good. Uh, so stay tuned and uh, please follow me wherever you uh, look for videos. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that there's a link on my site and I'll make sure that there's a link that goes out with this uh, episode. And of course, everyone knows it's paratalkpodcast.com. You can find uh, this uh, episode and all a load of other episodes, which are just as great. So anyway, thanks very much, Jason. And Thank you for having me. Until next time, see you soon. Mm-hmm.